Simple Beep, Episode 7, The Early Mac Internet. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Mac and a little bit more about community because we're going to talk about online communities and how we and many other people got online in earlier days of the Mac, especially the mid-90s when when dial-up internet was becoming a thing in the U.S. and then around the world. Before we dive into that topic, though, uh, we do have a little bit of follow-up from our previous episode. Episode 6 was about keyboards. We got some great feedback about all sorts of different keyboards that people have or that people have used in the past. Uh, we got people sending us pictures of their keyboard collections. It looked exactly like the uh, the gallery that we had put in the show notes, except one person had them literally all on one wall. Yeah, a really nice Mac nostalgia room set up. Yep. Um, and a couple other things about various aspects of it that we mentioned. So we had mentioned that we were talking mostly about U.S. keyboards, uh, U.S. QWERTY, English layouts. And one thing that we didn't mention was sort of the differences between that and like a UK English layout. As ever, American English and British English are, you know, a common language separated. (laughs) And so I actually just saw a picture of a UK English layout uh, today because Mike Hurley from Relay FM tweeted a picture of his MacBook and it's got this sort of jarring layout if you're if you're a US keyboard user because especially the thing that's noticeable is the return slash enter key over on the right hand side of the keyboard does not look right. No. Um we're used to having it where it's a straight horizontal bar that goes across the width of just about two keys. Whereas many international keyboards, I guess, have an enter key that's sort of an L shape and it can either be like uh uh, right side up L shape or an inverted L shape uh, that's basically two t- two keys tall, but only one key, sometimes even less than one key wide. And there was also an interesting article that I found this past week that talked about this on Medium. It was written by members of the Medium team, and it's called The Case of the Disappearing Polish S. And we'll put that link to that in the show notes. And some users who were using Polish keyboard layouts on Medium wrote into them and said, hey, every time I try to type this letter in Polish, which is an S with a little accent mark on it, it just does nothing. Like, why is it not working? Um, And they go into sort of the history of keyboards and that in Poland, apparently, there were these two competing layouts, the sort of vertical, vertical enter layout and the horizontal enter layout. And they called them the one with the horizontal layout, like the English the, or the U.S. English keyboard, is the, quote, programmer's layout, whereas the one with the vertical enter key, which I would just not be able to type on very much at all, <laughs> um, is like the Spanish keyboard that my girlfriend got, and she's still getting used to it. She, like, can't reach over far enough for the key. Um, that's called the typist's layout. So apparently it's like, a, by some standards, is like the more pure way of typing if, you know, what you're actually interested in is getting words on a page as opposed to manipulating a computer interface. And it's interesting that the one, you know, the the programmer's layout won in the U.S., 
whereas the typists lay out one in much of the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I found that article really interesting. And there's some cool stuff behind the scenes at Medium as well, if you enjoy their website. Yeah, basically they were black holing Command S. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it turns out that uh, because of the vagaries of computer software over time, that was actually what was being typed or the, you know, the software signal that was being sent uh, by these Polish keyboards. And so they were unable to type their language. <laughs> One other thing, we got a bunch of feedback about ADB, the Apple desktop bus. Um, an interesting tip from listener Paul, who sent us an email, who said that ADB cables got a second life for him because it turned out that you could use ADB cables then for S-Video. And so S-Video was an analog video standard. And apparently the reason that this worked is that both of these, uh, both of these formats used what are called mini-DIN connectors. So it's the standard shape of connector. And also the, uh, the PS2 ports, the uh, PC keyboard and mouse ports, are also mini-DIN connectors, but they have a different number of pins. So those, the plugs, will not physically fit uh, into each other. But S-Video ports apparently use the same number of pins, and you could just, like, haul out an old ADB cable, and lots of, uh, lots of PowerBooks, I think, had S-Video out. Did you ever use that, Brian? I did. Uh, the PowerBook I took to college had, on the actual machine, uh, I think it was mini VGA, but it shipped with an adapter from that to S-Video, and that's how we watched the, the pirated content we got off the college network on uh, my sweet mate's TV sophomore year. Yep, I remember doing that too. I had uh, S-Video out, I think direct from my PowerBook, and uh, every week I would torrent the episode of Lost because we didn't <laughs> we didn't want to watch it live or with commercials. Yep, that's and exactly what we were watching too. Hook it up to my SDTV and invite everybody over to my dorm room, and oh boy, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was analog tastic. A few other people mentioned to us, "Hey guys, you you got like basically every keyboard, but you didn't talk about the Emate keyboard." And the fact of the matter is that. I don't think I've ever seen an Emate keyboard. <laughs> um, I I might have laid eyes on an Emate once in my life, but I think the reason was our school might have tried them out. Um, but our school was full of a different ADB device, which was the Alpha Smart. Do you remember these, Brian? I do. Uh, they handed them out to kids. Uh, <laughs> at least the only. Uh, instance I remember of using an Office Smart is I got to borrow it off of someone at my school who had the worst handwriting. Uh, so the teacher <laughs> lent him an Alpha Smart for submitting uh, anything written. Yeah. So what they were, they were basically a keyboard with a small LCD display. So they weren't a full laptop. And obviously there were obviously there were no tablets at the time. Yeah. So. It was the keyboard with maybe like a three to five line LCD display. Right. Not a full display to see everything that you're working on, but just the, like the last two or three sentences. Right. And you could just type on it and it would show up on that line. You could scroll back. It had memory um, and you could scroll back and you could edit. So it had some like very you know minimal word processing features, but you couldn't see much text at once. And... The notion was, yeah, you could have it in a class for someone whose handwriting was terrible, or you could the like the library would loan them out and you could take them home, 
uh, if you didn't have a home computer to type on, which, you know, in 1995 is not out of the question. Right. Then what you would do is you would take the Alpha Smart and you take it to a computer, you plug it in by ADB, and you would push a button and it would emulate all the keystrokes that it had stored from you. So it was basically like a keylogger. Yeah. And then it would play back the keylog input. So you would open up, you know, whatever text editor or word processor and hit go, and you would just watch the characters stream across the screen until it was done. You know, it would take a minute or so. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting little tool. Um, and like I said, our school was full of it, full of them. And... I don't know, we we haven't really mentioned this on the show much, Brian, but in case it was not clear to people who don't know us, um, the two of us grew up together and went to the same elementary school where we worked in the same Mac lab and, you know, learned a lot of this stuff uh, in the same place. Yes. So the two of us have a very similar perspective <laughs> on the Mac because we grew up two blocks from each other <laughs> yeah. in the same town. And one thing that we've been thinking about is that, you know, we're, we're just two white guys who grew up in the same town in Ohio and are now talking about Macs together. And we really think that it would be great to hear from other people who have different perspectives, who were somewhere else or a different age or in a totally different circumstance uh, than we were in, say, 1995, 1996, when we were... Uh, spending all of our extra hours in the Mac lab, hacking away on LCs and quadras. Um, so, you know, we love talking about old Macs, but we haven't talked about sort of our personal experiences with the Mac, except as they pertain to a given topic. We would love to hear from people how they got involved with the Mac, what they were able to do with the Mac. And especially if you are not another white guy, <laughs> That's just who we are. We love this stuff. We're not going to stop talking about it, but we definitely want to hear everybody else's voice. So if you or someone that you know would like to talk to us about those things, um, definitely get in touch. You can go on our website and uh, go to the contact page and just send us a quick message, and we'd love to hear from you. On to this episode's topic now, uh, the early internet as experienced on the Macintosh. And we figured we would start by getting the 800-pound gorilla out of the way. And that is, of course, America Online. Um, I guess it means a lot of things to a lot of people, but one of the most common images associated with America Online, especially in the mid-1990s, is the mountain of floppy disks and later compact disks that you would get completely unsolicited in the mail advertising uh, 250 free hours, 500 free hours, a thousand free hours, unlimited free hours. It, it, they jumped to unlimited when they realized that the math was starting to not work out anymore because the, those hours were supposed to be limited to your first months of use. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how many hours are there in a month? Yeah, oh, exactly. oh, we ran out. <laughs> we ran exactly. <laughs> Once you go over like a thousand, uh, there's not too many more hours left in the month. Yeah. Uh, so we, we have a note here that it uh, switched over to Unlimited in October 1996, for those of you wanting to contextualize this in the 1990s. Right. And I remember that basically the first time that I was ever online was when my family got AOL. And I believe we started in September of 1994. So we had gotten our first Mac earlier that year, which is the Parmac 6100, and it had been offline for the summer. 
that didn't really seem like a big hindrance. There was so much that we were learning because it was our first Mac. Um, but then we decided, hey, this online thing seems to be the future. Um, and AOL, you know, like we said, the, the, it just showed up in the mailbox. Like you get like credit card solicit- solicitations today or like, you know, the grocery store ad. It, it just showed up. And, you know, you're worn down <laughs> over time. <laughs> and, okay, fine. Let's let's give this a shot. Um, so we started then, and I think that it was sort of back when version numbers made sense. Um, and I looked up a timeline of AOL versions, and I think we were in the, like, 1.7 point something era of, of AOL when we started. And they did, you know, they incremented, you know, 1.7.2. 1.7.3. <laughs> and then one, you know, I don't know if there was a 1.8, but definitely when 2.0 came out, it was like, whoa, this is, you know, 2.0 was a huge jump. I cannot possibly tell you what was involved <laughs> in this huge jump to version 2.0. Uh, but at the time, it seemed huge. Uh, I didn't, moral, I should say, my family didn't get AOL until a couple years later because I know I had it, I did not have it in middle school and I had it in high school. So sometime in the summer of 1999, uh, my family must have signed up for AOL. And uh, on the same timeline, that pegs me at about version four point something. So did you come in in the unlimited era already? Yes. Yeah. Already, already unlimited. Okay. So yeah, I started in the pay per minute era and I racked up massive AOL (laughs) bills. Oh, no. Um, because I think our plan, it was like maybe 500 minutes. Oh, geez. A month? A month. Wow. And over that, it was pay per minute. And you could go, there was like a separate section where you could check your usage and it would show you a log of all the usage, um, and add it up. And I guess the like base rate was probably something like 20 bucks a month. And I definitely remember racking up even before we got the second phone line. Even before that, I remember racking up like 60, 70, 80 dollar AOL bills. Wow. From just sitting on it in chat rooms and <laughs> you know, it was it was the best thing ever. It really was. I mean, you look at it now and you wonder how could we have spent so much time on something so primitive? Uh, there are companies these days that get called out for being a walled garden. Apple gets called out for being a walled garden with uh, the App Store ecosystem. Facebook, most especially. Yeah, Facebook is a walled garden. Uh, but AOL is probably the original walled garden. You could go into AOL and spend all your time on their proprietary features. You didn't have to go, or not have to, but you you didn't feel like you had to go out onto the World Wide Web and open up a browser. Well, the fact of the matter was that for many people at that time, the walled garden made sense because outside the walled garden was a vast desert. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Right? I mean, sure, there was other stuff going on on the internet, especially on other protocols, you know, Usenet and those sorts of things before then. But if you weren't really a savvy computer user already, you really weren't interested in that sort of stuff. You were interested in getting some information, 
doing this new thing called email, that kind of thing. And the walled garden was friendly as opposed to whatever else was out there. They had it segmented into different areas. You could go to the the news area, the sports area, the finance, the shopping, uh, and they called those channels. But the thing I actually remember is that uh, companies could set themselves up with AOL keywords, I guess a lot like you would want to claim a Twitter handle or a Facebook vanity URL today. And as a matter of fact, I can remember television commercials where in the five seconds at the end where they're showing the logo and maybe a 1-800 number, you could see like AOL keyword uh, Rolex or something like that. So you could go directly to that company's presence on America Online. And it's not much different than when companies flash a, a Twitter handle or even just like a Twitter bird and the Facebook F at the end of their commercials today. Yeah. So we thought that this was a novelty then, but man, it's just it, it just seems like it's going to come in waves yeah. for for the foreseeable future because it sort of died down for a while, but then Facebook, like you said, with the vanity URLs and then Twitter hashtags. I I remember just seeing, you know, just a week or so ago during the Super Bowl, people going, you had this wonderful, fantastic ad, and then you went to a black screen at the end and you threw up this meaningless Twitter hashtag. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's this sort of thing that's it comes and goes in in waves. And I feel like maybe a couple years ago was when Twitter hashtags were like a positive thing. And now they're on the downslope where it's like, what are you doing with that? That's that's not how people are using things. That's not how information is actually gotten. Yeah. <laughs> um Whereas in the heyday of AOL in the late 90s, that was the simplest way to get information frequently. Yes, it was like curated small amounts of information that you had very little control over, but you knew that there was going to be something on the other end. One thing that I should mention, you know, before we go too far into just AOL as a service, you know, we're not talking very much about the Mac here, right? But... I think that was one of the things that was interesting about AOL and early internet was that it was one of the first truly cross-platform experiences because, you know, as an AOL user, what they were focusing more on, the primary thing was that you were an AOL user, not that you were a Mac user or a Windows user. Like, that was the thing that connected everybody together in that system, in the walled garden. And... In 1994, Apple was definitely struggling, but there was enough of a presence there that there was a Mac client and a Windows client. They were pretty much, at that point, they were pretty much being developed in lockstep. So, you know, each one would get uh, sort of the, the second level, the point, second level point updates were on their own. So, you know, like, oh, okay, so 1.7.0 has some bugs on Windows. We'll fix those Windows bugs and call it 1.7.1. And then like those would get out of sync for the the two versions, but then when they went to 1.8, like everybody came back together on board same features. Um and you know, so those little it, everything was moving along together. Um and you mentioned the disks that would just show up in your mail. You're like, why is this here? <laughs> um, but if you actually, 
you you would think that okay, well, like I became a subscriber, I gave them my address and my information, and so they know, so they should stop bothering me, right? Yeah. But they would keep sending the discs, and they looked the same as any other discs. They didn't send you special discs, but they were still useful because I I think it was for at least the first year that my family was using it. They were sending floppies in the mail, and the fact of the matter was, if you got a new AOL disc in the mail, two things. First thing, you would say, hey, uh, is this the same version that I have? Oh, no, it's 0.0.1 higher. Let me go install this. Yeah, I'll run an update. I'll run an update because it was basically the best and sometimes the only way to update the client. I remember that it might have been a 2.0 or 2.5 feature where they... They did, quote, over-the-air updates (laughs) where you could download the new version of the client software, and it took so long that it was in that separate area where they didn't charge you. Oh, yeah. It was a keyword update. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to keyword update, and it gives you a little message. It says, okay, we're turning off the meter now (laughs) because you're in the special zone where all you can do is download the new software update. And you would hit go. And you would go have lunch, and you would come back, <laughs> and it would be 30% done. Yeah. And so those discs, as much as they seemed silly and frivolous, actually were doing useful service for a long time. And then back to the AOL experience, if you weren't just into consuming content, uh, like Ed said, there was this brand new thing called email and AOL, I, we were talking before the show, my parents still have an AOL account for email. I think it's it was a lot of people's first email address. It was definitely mine. Mine too. Because we didn't know any better. We didn't know anything about like what your presence was supposed to be on the internet. Um, you, know, you had to pick your screen name, which also became your email address. And I think it was just like alphanumeric 10-character limit. Yeah, that sounds right. When we signed up. Um, and for a long time, I was just edcormony at AOL.com. Like, that was it. This is my name. And, you know, I was like 10, <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> like, we didn't have any care in the world. This didn't seem like that big of a deal. Just like, yeah, throw it out there. And uh, today, that would actually be what you would want to sign up for if you got a, a Gmail or something. But then there was that time in between when you must have signed up and when I signed up where it became like the primary means of self-expression on the internet. Like how quirky is your username? What does it reference? What does it say about you? Well, they, they were gaining popularity so quickly. All right. So you were running out of the, if you had a common name, you obviously weren't going to get it. Yeah. And so it's 10 alphanumeric characters and like, Things were turning, (laughs) it was turning to the point where it was almost just like complete gibberish was the only thing that was left that you could pick. Uh, So when my family got internet, I'm I'm ashamed, but I will say it, my screen name were my initials BDS and then Bosca, B-O-S-K-A, all one string of characters, because Bosca was the only like snippet of Jabba the Hutt's language that I could like phonetically spell out and you know, not what he was trying to say, but like what the, the puppet voice was saying. And I thought, you know, I was, I was into star Wars at the time. So I was like, yeah, I'll make a star Wars reference and have my initials and that'll be my AOL name. So Brian, this, this may like crush your childhood spirit. 
Oh, no. I can't even remember why. It was probably to make some dumb joke on Twitter. The other day, I looked up Jabba the Hutt quotes. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, hoodies is an actual thing if you're that particular type of nerd. (laughs) Of course it is. Bosca has two S's. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) And you would have fit under the limit, too. <laughs> would have. Well, I was walking around with a misspelled AOL handle for all of high school. Great. Wasn't it also that you could have, like, three of them on an account? I think was the max. Um, it was more than three. It was at least four. Then it became five. Well, maybe we signed up when it was five. At that, at that point, you know, there were only three people in my family. And it's like, oh, man, open slots. I can do anything with this. <laughs> yeah. I I was a different, slightly different type of nerd around that time. I was a big Pokemon nerd. <laughs> um, so I remember, I think the first time that I changed my AOL screen name was to Dugtrio100, because I had a level 100 Dugtrio. <laughs> which which you, you caught that Dugtrio, Brian. Oh, and we traded? You traded it to me. All comes oh. around. <laughs> <laughs> like we said, we've known each other for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a super big Pokemon nerd in, in middle school. I was very proud that I was the uh, I was the first person in our school to get all 150. That's right. That's right. I remember that. Carlos traded me a Vaporeon. He didn't know. The Eevees, man. You got to cover all the Eevees. Um. I think actually for senior year of high school and going into college, I realized I couldn't carry uh, a Star Wars reference in my name. I didn't even know it was misspelled. Uh, and I switched to the equally dumb Raspberry, which was how I pronounced the fruit Raspberry as a child. And uh, I real- I can still log in to uh, AIM as Raspberry still today. That account is still being kept alive on AOL servers. Oh gosh, I have no idea if any of my stuff is still active on AIM, which I suppose we should talk about next. So one of the big features of AOL that sort of persisted past the dial-up era was instant messaging. AOL created, first what they did was they created the buddy list functionality. So the whole purpose of the buddy list was just to let you know if anybody that you knew was online at the same time as you. Because if they were, then that enabled you to do things other than like send each other an email and hope that they saw it sometime. Right. You could actually send an quote instant message and wonders of the internet. They would see it right away. (laughs) Um, and that became, you know, the the instant message feature of AOL. And then in 1997, it was spun off as AOL Instant Messenger, which then became known as AIM or AIM. I always refuse to pronounce it AIM. I did too. I always spelled it out. Uh, in many ways, uh, and this is not an original thought of mine, I've seen it elsewhere, uh, AOL Instant Messenger was the first social network because you did have a profile you maintained, you had your buddy list, your list of friends, and you uh, could interact with them, obviously, by the instant chat. But it also had file transfers. It was like a fully-fledged thing. Yeah, I remember that you could set custom notifications for when people came and left. I had, like, 
a suite of like 30 different sounds all assigned to different friends of mine. So I wouldn't even have to see the window because obviously we're working on tiny, tiny screens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. It was like a full-fledged, it it was our social network in late 90s and early 2000s. And, oh, one of the other features that it had was the ability to set an away message. Yes. So once once we were in the era of basically always-on internet, even if you were still on dial-up, chances were... You had a second phone line, could just sort of leave it on. Or maybe by the very end of the 90s, you had actually moved to real broadband of the of the day and had an always-on internet connection. Well, you could still use AIM. And like you said, port over your, your old name. And so what people could do is instead of sending each other individual messages, you could set up an away message, which was like... A status and you would just put in a little message there and everyone else who was online could see what your away message was and originally it was supposed to indicate that you weren't there but eventually i think maybe in the early versions of the software if you sent a message like it went away but then they realized that people were using it for more than just hey don't talk to me now they were using it as basic status and self-expression and still wanted to be talking to people. It was just the latest thing that they wanted to post to everybody. Yeah. And so they changed the way that that feature worked. And I I have here somehow ported over from computer to computer to computer through the ages. I have a folder of screenshots of away messages that all took place between 2002 and 2003. There are 617 GIFs in this folder (laughs) of various random things that my high school friends decided was worth putting on the internet. And, you know, everyone thought that they were ephemeral. They were gone. And I have this little time capsule, and it's super weird to, to look back at, but it's all there. Uh, yeah, um, I remember in 2006 or 2007, uh, someone at my college got a Twitter account, probably one of the first, and I asked them to explain what Twitter was to me, and he's like, oh, it's like a blog, but you're only posting away messages. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a perfect description. <laughs> it kind of is, uh, and it, it kind of works in the other way. Like Like you said, at first, away messages were literally interpreted i'm away from the keyboard so i'm not going to respond to anything you send me but they kind of just became tweets like i'm gonna have this status up talking about whatever i want to express myself while i continue to have uh real-time chats with my friends and i remember there were uh there were wildcard characters you could use like i think it was like percent n would insert the person uh who was reading your message it would insert their username into the text of it. So you could like trick people and you could have an away message. To, like I hate percent N, but they would see it and be like, oh, he hates me. Very, <laughs> very petty high school stuff. One last thing about away messages is um, in the early OS 10 days, in early OS 10 days, I started using Adium instead of the official AIM client because it was, I think it didn't exist for a while for OS X, and then it finally came out, and it was complete garbage. 
And there was this third-party software that, at that point, AIM was sort of an open standard, almost, and basically anyone could connect to it. And Adium was the first sort of real AIM client for OS X. And it was super bare bones and simple. I remember in the early versions, it was like you know, Adium 0.6 point something, you know, before the first, quote, full release. And the whole app was like 300K. Wow. It was tiny, tiny, tiny. But it also had like all these preferences and features that you could tweak, the appearance and everything. But for like two years at the beginning of its development, and when I was using it as my primary AIM client, it didn't have away message support. So it would show you that somebody was away, but you couldn't see what their away message was. Uh, deal breaker. And it was, it was like having, like you said, it was like, if today it's like, okay, well, here's this new software. It lets you see all of the internet except Twitter. Like how, how crushing would that be? Yeah. The worst. <laughs> but I, I persevered through. I used Adium for a long time. It was in my dock up until, gosh, I don't know, a year or so ago. And then I realized it also got Google Talk capabilities after a while. But I realized after Twitter became my primary means of talking with people, I never used it. And so I finally, finally sent Adium away. Um, to wrap up some things about AOL, uh, we both obviously were using it because our family signed up for it. And my family, both my parents had accounts and they definitely took advantage of parental controls, which in addition to restricting my account from visiting some unsavory channels, uh, it actually affected the, the way the computer was connected to the internet. So, um, Say I wanted to circumvent something because uh, AOL's browser wouldn't let me go to a certain website. I still couldn't open a separate browser on the computer like Internet Explorer. Uh, any outside application would be completely shut off from using the AOL Internet connection if parental controls were applied. And uh, I'll talk about how I circumvented that later on in this episode. Right, and that's... You know, that's so different from how we think of an internet connection today. Right. Especially with talk of net neutrality and, you know, the internet is a dumb pipe. Like, any, if I am connected to the internet, I should be able to see basically any other computer on the internet, use any piece of software to send packets however the heck I want. Um, of course, that was a client-side feature, you know. You know, even today, you can limit internet connectivity client-side. There are apps like Little Snitch for OS X, which monitors all of your outgoing traffic. And it's looking for basically things that are, quote, phoning home. Anything that's sending data at a time or to a place that you might not expect. And then you can sort of stop that before it leaves your system. That's kind of what the parental controls were doing, except on in the other direction. Anything coming in saying, hey, this is from a place that I don't expect or using software that I don't expect. So I'm going to block that. And that's always been a feature of connecting to the Internet on the Mac and really on any system. 
And one final thing about AOL, we are recording this the day before they announced their fourth quarter earnings report. So we have this figure from their third quarter of 2014, uh, their membership division, which includes people still paying for dial-up, generated almost $200 million in just three months. Uh, it accounted for nearly a third of America Online's overall revenue for the quarter. And of course, we don't know how much of that is straight dial-up fees. And if there are other things you can pay for, like just maintaining your email address with the company. But that's a shocking amount of money to me. 2014. It's no $18 billion. Yeah. Like Apple just posted. But, you know, we live in the US. There are many places still in 2015 in the US where there is telephone infrastructure, but no broadband infrastructure. And you're looking at maybe satellite internet coverage, but even that doesn't cover everywhere. And so, you know, some of that $200 million is really providing people with a valuable service because for them, it's that or nothing in terms of connecting to the internet or only connecting via, uh, via wireless, you know, on a smartphone. Yeah. Using your cellular data as a hotspot or something. Yeah. And even then, if you're really out in the sticks... Good luck. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Exactly. One other thing that we should mention um, has also been in the recent news with AOL and bringing it back to the Mac is that today AOL, like you said, Brian, you're surprised just, you know, how much money they're still making from their subscriber fees. But they've tried to sort of pivot their business and be more of like a media platform. And they did a big rebranding several years ago where they changed their logo, their name is now officially AOL instead of America Online, and then they lowercased the last two letters and put a period at the end, so it looks like OWL, (laughs) which I thought was a dumb rebranding. But it turns out that they did sort of a media buy-up, and they owned a lot of sites that people know and love and may have not even realized, because I didn't realize until last week that AOL was the owner of Tua, the unofficial <laughs> Apple weblog, which sadly the news came out that they were getting shut down by AOL. They're now owners. They started as an independent blog, obviously, um, did lots of fantastic coverage of the Mac for years and years, but AOL, obviously a struggling company, thought that that wasn't a chance to make any money, and decided that the thing to do was to just kill it rather than try to spin it back off, even though a lot of people, a lot of good people wrote a lot of good stuff for that site. They are moving on to other things now. Um, oh, what's the site that... Uh, it's appleworld.today. Yes, that was it. I was going to say Apple News. Appleworld.today, which is prob- probably one of the best uses of crazy new TLDs I've ever seen. Um, but a lot of the people from from the unofficial Apple weblog moved over there, and we're sure they're going to keep doing great work there. All right. Before we jump into the next part of the early internet, which is way more Mac-related, I would like to tell you and our listeners about a product that you might have liked. This is also topical uh, regarding news of the day. I just found an article today that 
it is the 10th anniversary as we record to the day of the release of Google Maps. Oh, wow. So this episode of Simple Beep is not brought to you by the Street Atlas USA 3.02 pack. <laughs> so, Brian, mm-hmm. have you ever had the problem that you've looked something up in the phone book and you found the address for a business, but you just don't know where it is? Boy, have I. So a great product for you would be Street Atlas USA 3.0 from Delorme. Because with this software, you can load a CD into the optical drive of your Mac, open up the Street Atlas USA software, and you can search by zip code or address and get maps. You can even zoom in, zoom out, see the map legend, and print out the map. How useful. Now, if you need directions to a place, you're out of luck because it doesn't (laughs) have directions. (laughs) And if you really want to see where you are as you're driving in your car on the way there, that's too bad because GPS was not really a thing in 1994. But let me tell you that Street Atlas USA is actually still a thing. Oh, wow. But they have updated themselves for the GPS age. They even have an iOS app. Anyway, all of this has been obviated by Google Maps these days, especially on your phone. And... My family actually also owned Street Atlas USA. (laughs) It was a freaking miracle at the time. Could not endorse it highly enough in 1995. So thank you to Delorme for not sponsoring this episode of Simple Beep. Speaking of things from the 1990s that were slow, (laughs) Apple had its own internet service provider with uh, a very beautiful graphically designed, essentially, walled garden. And it was called eWorld. eWorld launched in June of 1994. So right around that time that the first uh, Power Max came out. It started uh, when John Scully was CEO at Apple. It was one of his projects. Uh, According to the photo on Wikipedia, it looks like version 1.0 came on a pair of floppy disks. So this must have been right around that time where AOL was not able to cram their client app onto floppy disk anymore. Although I imagine that many of these beautiful graphical assets in eWorld were probably stored in the app itself instead of loading them over the dial-up connection. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to eWorld. Here's a beautiful homepage. Wait a minute. No, I I think they were part of the app, which is probably... Why it, why it was distributed that way. So eWorld is interesting, the way that it came about. So 1994, AOL has, is far from its peak, you know, 97 release of AIM, that sort of thing. That was when AOL was in its prime before broadband started getting saturation. 94, AOL had a pre- what seemed like a critical mass of subscribers, but was apparently struggling financially. And the eWorld project was actually a collaboration between Apple and AOL. So Apple didn't have the dial-up, dial-in infrastructure to connect people to the internet. And they also didn't have a client software that they had built all themselves. So they worked with AOL and 
brokered a deal where they gave AOL basically a cash infusion. They paid them cash. And in return, AOL gave them access to their backend for dial-up and also basically gave them what looks like the AOL client for Mac code base. So I had never used eWorld before. Um, like I said, we were AOL subscribers. Mm-hmm. I do remember that when my grandpa got his Performa, it came bundled with eWorld. And we thought about signing him up for it, but it was a couple years, it was like a year or so later, and we kind of realized that eWorld was in its death throes. <laughs> so he got AOL instead. But I never used it, and I looked up some screenshots over the past couple of days, and I did not realize that a lot of it looks like a skinned version of AOL. Yeah. So do you remember when you connected to AOL with, you know, the crunchy modem noises? <laughs> um, there were the screen that it showed while it was connecting had these like three panes. It was sort of proceeding from left to right. And by the time you reached the end, that meant, ah, we've completed the process of connecting you to the internet, which could take minutes sometimes, especially when AOL was at its height and was over capacity. And so, you know, we compared it to Twitter with the away messages. Remember the fail whale days of Twitter? Oh, yes. There was a time there where AOL, connecting to AOL was a lot like the fail whale days, because you were dialing into a bank of numbers. Mm-hmm. And those were for your local area. There might be, I don't know, in a metro area, maybe 50 numbers. I'm not sure how they handed you off then to a different connection. Because obviously, like there were more than 50 people online at a time in a metro area. Yeah. So I don't know how the technology of that worked exactly. But... If people were dialing those numbers at the exact same second, you would get a busy signal. Mm -hmm. And you could just go through a list and a list and a list, and you would think that it would connect, and then, oh, it would boot you because because the line got oversaturated or who knows. Um, So that was a big problem at the time. But it had this graphic that proceeded left to right, and if you got to the far side, you eventually went through. And... E-World had the exact same thing. It was the exact same window layout, three panes, and they just replaced the graphics with the E-World style graphics. So, Brian, maybe you can describe the the art style of the E-World. Uh, it's it's kind of I almost want to say watercolory, but in like very small bitmap, limited color palette. Oh, and it's it's had the hell dithered out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, these are probably GIF format images. And, to, well, maybe not GIF format, but 256 colors. Uh, one of the engineers on the eWorld project said, our target screen was 640 by 480, 256 colors. And this was in a retrospective interview. And they said, those constraints were normal at the time. And it absolutely was. But you can see how dated it looks when you... Uh, view these screenshots on a modern screen, and we'll put them in the show notes. As they take up a tiny corner of your screen. Yeah. Uh, I would describe the style as, again, like a little bit maybe originally a watercolor with thick black outlines and kind of gradient or watercolor-esque as the the color becomes less saturated, uh, filling in the shapes. And um, there are 
There are people figures. Yes, they're little fat people. Yeah. So the there was a design team that did this aspect of the project because obviously a lot of the code was handed to them. And Cleo Huggins was the person who led the design team and made the sort of distinctive, it's a hand-drawn design. So like you said, watercolor. It's sort of like, yeah, like pen and ink kind of style. Um, and there was another person on that team named Mark Drury who invented the E-people, who are these sort of fat peg men, and the fictional buildings that they inhabited. So the the main screen was this city of fantastic buildings, as opposed to the AOL main page, which was those channel names, just like a bunch of little like banners, little strips, rectangles. Little buttons, almost. Yeah. So... E-World was supposed to be, you know, softer, friendlier, more like the Mac. But its main screen uh, and its main functionality really had a lot of those same areas. So you would have a place to read uh, the news. You would have a place to read about finance. But instead of just being boring titles like that, they were entire buildings, like Ed said. So the news area was actually called Newsstand, which, of course, we have now in iOS. There was the Arts and Leisure Pavilion. Not not the Arts and Leisure Channel. The Arts and Leisure Pavilion. Like, this is the difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Learning Center. The Computer Center. The Business and Finance Plaza. Uh, and more. Marketplace. The, the Community Center, which were basically chat rooms. And even email was the Email Center. I like the Community Center. <laughs> the AOL parallel of that was called... People connection, <laughs> which just sounds like totally robotic and yeah. unfriendly in comparison. Whereas in eWorld, you're going to go into a building called the Community Center. And everyone's so colorful and fat. So eWorld had this beautiful design, something that we would expect from Apple, but it had its problems, many logistic problems. So one of the things was that it was expensive, even by 1994 standards. So the basic monthly charge was $8.95 a month for two off-peak hours. So that meant not during the day. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, you know, after 6 p.m. And then you could, if you ran over two hours, so 120 minutes of connectivity per month, which was less than even the basic AOL plans in that at that time. It was $4.95 an hour for off-peak hours and another $8.95 an hour for peak hours. Which is incredible. Right. And so I said, you know, I was racking up like $60, $70 AOL bills, but that was for staying on like all the time. Just imagine if you had been in the glorious e-world. Oh, it would have been like people who go to other countries and just use their smartphones on on roaming and come home it, oh it would have been it would have been bad yeah so this would definitely set it back because if you wanted to be sort of a serious internet user it was not going to happen also the fact that you couldn't be a serious internet user when it launched because it was a properly walled garden i think aol gave you that sort of external co connectivity, use any app that you want, as long as the parental controls are off, mm -hmm. um, fairly early on. 
And Apple brought that in 1995 with a feature called Internet (laughs) On-Ramp, continuing the city metaphor. Um, It's like you're now leaving the the friendly e-world city. Good luck. (laughs) Um, But that allowed, you know, World Wide Web access, FTP access, etc. But the fact of the matter was that you weren't going to pay that kind of hourly rate just to get your web access, especially given that it was kind of obvious that around the corner from AOL, they were going to run out of hours in the free hours in the month mm-hmm. and that they were going to be going to unlimited plans. So eWorld really wound up losing out to AOL. The dumbest, dumbest mistake that led to this was that as they were in negotiations for what this deal was between Apple and AOL, they also managed to get Apple to bundle on certain Mac models, probably Performas. Makes sense. Performas were really the only ones that were getting much bundled software. That the AOL client app was coming bundled, uh, and the eWorld client app was coming bundled on new Macs. And given that choice, people knew that all their friends were on AOL, one. And two, this eWorld thing was mad expensive. (laughs) And, you know, when they're presented to you just like that side by side, it seemed like an easy choice. So eWorld topped out at, I think, it had like less than 200,000 subscribers. And at that time, AOL was counting in the millions, not in the tens of millions yet. But over 3 million, I think the stat said. And also from a retrospective view a quote from Scott Converse, who is an Apple engineer who worked on the eWorld product, something that sounds all too familiar. His quote is, Apple never really got the online services market. They were so hardware focused, they just didn't think of services as being important. And man, 20 years later, how often are we hearing people complain just that very thing? That iCloud is the new (laughs) eWorld. iCloud is a lot better than eWorld and way less expensive, fortunately. That is fair. That's all true. I'm still on the free plan. Oh, me too. Um, so yeah, eWorld was was beautiful. It had this great metaphor. It was a very Apple-like piece of software, but it was killed less than two years after its debut. Um, it was not killed by Steve Jobs. It was before Steve Jobs got back to the company. Of course, he cleaned house with lots of various projects, including the E-Mate and anything that ran the Newton OS. Um, Throughout their work on Rhapsody and brought in the next backend for for Mac OS X. But this was actually killed when Gil Emilio took over as CEO. Yeah, and uh, its last day was actually the day before April Fool's in 1996. And uh, I stuck this in our show notes as as reference. At that time, the operating, the current operating system was system seven point five point three. So yes, when eWorld shut down, if you could obviously still open the client application, but if you tried to connect, you would just get a warning dialog box, the one with the hand on the stop sign, and all it says is buy dot dot 
E-World no longer available. <laughs> they couldn't even... They, the door was closed so fast they couldn't even get the punctuation right. It's not an ellipsis. It's dot dot, and there's no period at the end of the sentence. <laughs> this place is closed. Uh, very quickly, I'd like to go over, uh, I guess, the last bit of uh, dial-up internet access from this time. Uh, like I said, my family was on America Online, and they had restricted mine and my brother's accounts under parental controls, so I wasn't able to access the free web or uh, anything on another protocol like FTP. So I began looking into these other internet service providers that were always claiming totally free, unlimited access. Uh, some of these names may ring a bell to our listeners. I think Net Zero was the biggest one. There was also Juno. Um, and then there was one called Blue Light, which was majority owned by Kmart, uh, famous for their Blue Light deals. Um, and they had a number uh, in our area code. Uh, so usually with these free ISPs, how do they make money? Uh, the same way anything free, even today, really makes money and they would show ads. So you'd have to get client software from them. Uh, that would handle the the dialing and the connecting. Um, and then while your session was active, while you were online, you would have to deal with a banner ad on your computer, just kind of like a floating window banner ad. Uh, so that was one annoyance, obviously. Could you not just hide the app? No, I think it was one of those like message windows. I don't know. I'd never stuck with any of them for very long, but I think they did a way of... They were all pretty fly-by-night anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, this was at a time when the Mac was a very clear minority of internet users. So the client software for some of these maybe didn't even exist for Mac. And if they did, they were pretty poor pieces of software. Uh, I'm pretty sure blue light, at least when I was using it, did not have native Mac, uh, client connecting applications, but they had a list of, uh, their local dial-up numbers, and you could still get an account with a username and password for your signing-in credentials on their website. So I was able to sign up for a bluelight.com account while you know signed into AOL. And then uh, I think it was macOS 8.5, definitely in uh, OS 9, you could go into the remote access control panel and configure a PPP connection with the number, the port, your username and password, and get all the stuff squared away for the Mac to actually handle natively. No client software required. No TCP IP extension, none of that. Exactly, none of that. And it was even uh, so convenient that they had a control strip module. So, uh, you know, like when my family's gone to bed and the phone line is free and I want to download some MP3s, uh, I had an iMac in my room in high school and I could just open the control strip and open the remote access control strip module and click connect. And I would get free dial up that was never even tied to like an address or anything. And I felt like I was the world's biggest hacker. Every, every time <laughs> I did that, I was like, I'm circumventing parental controls. I can go wherever I want. This is, I'm not going to get a bill. I didn't have to download their software. This is totally from like this tiny little widget on the bottom of my screen that I had to set up myself. I thought it was so cool. And like a quick coda to this, 
all three of these ISPs that I just mentioned, Net Zero, Juno, and Blue Light by Kmart, are now owned by the same company that is providing paid dial-up. None of these are free anymore. And the company is called United Online. And um, this company also owns Classmates.com, which I guarantee you've seen an ad for on the internet at some point. Wow, it's like the past of the internet trying it to really live is. on. It's like, yeah, yeah, you people with your broadband and your Facebooks, we've got the classmates and dial-up. Still kicking. Still kicking. It's it's crazy. I remember the last time that I used dial-up was after we had canceled AOL and moved on to broadband. We had AT&T DSL, and they had like backup dial-up numbers. Oh, that's right. And you could look up numbers for an area, like if you were traveling, mm-hmm. like obviously you can't take your DSL with you. Right. There's no cell phone data at this point, besides maybe WAP. And so you could look up those numbers. And we kept, I had, for some reason, kept a list of these backup numbers. And it was in 2002 when there was the... Northeast blackout in the United States. Oh, I remember it, yeah. Where there was a huge power outage, chain reaction through the power grid, and people were without power all the way from New York City into the Midwest. And we were trying to figure out what was going on. And basically, the two ways that you could do that was if you had a battery-powered radio, turn on the radio and hope that they were still broadcasting, because obviously that requires power too. Or the thing was, I had these numbers and my PowerBook had a built-in modem that I never used, but my PowerBook was fully charged when the power went out and hooked it up to the phone line, which doesn't require power, plugged in one of these backup dial-up numbers, went online, was able to go to, you know, like CNN, New York Times, and get some news about what was going on in the world and like use it for 10 minutes and then shut it down because you know it had like two hours of power book battery um that was the last time that i used dial-up it was kind of like an end of the world scenario (laughs) that's pretty cool we want to talk about one other app that was created by apple and was part of the mac experience that dealt with the internet that we still qualify as early internet (laughs) We aren't going to come up to the present. You know, we aren't going to be talking about uh, Safari and Yosemite. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll probably talk about the history of Safari someday, but not today. Um, and one big internet sort of client application that Apple created, again, at this point, already assuming that your Mac is going to be able to have internet con- connectivity most, if not all, of the time, was Sherlock which was introduced in macOS 8.5. So Sherlock was originally sort of an add-on to the basic find file feature in macOS that would let you search for files on your hard disk. And in version 1 in OS 8.5, you basically got an extra tab on the end of the find file window that was search the internet. And what it would do is it would go and search the search engines of the day. No Google. (laughs) It would collate results from AltaVista, Excite, 
Apple's Tech Info Library, and a number of other sites, and bring all of those results into basically like a list view in the window. And people were raving about Sherlock when it came out because many people were still on dial-up, unlimited dial-up, but dial-up nonetheless. And one review said, sending Sherlock to search even a single site is faster than going there yourself, mainly because you don't have to wait for the search page, then the results page to be drawn on your screen. Um, so it was seen as this tool that would basically just go into the back end of search services and bring the data to you as part of the macOS experience. And it also had a way that it could be extended with plugins. I think they used uh, SGML plugins and any site that had their own custom search could basically say, hey, uh, Sherlock, you can use my custom search and return results. So all sorts of Mac-oriented websites, especially Mac publications, uh, wrote these plugins and were available in Sherlock in the OS. So Sherlock was real great at uh, providing fast results for a web query, relatively fast results. What it was terrible at was what it replaced, and that was finding files on your local disk. It did have the added benefit that I think this was the first time where you could search within files, like if you wanted to know which Word document had this certain sentence, uh, it would index the contents of these files and you could do it that way, which is really cool on paper, but the first version of Sherlock was so slow to do these operations. Sure, because... We know that even today, that sometimes you'll be sitting at a relatively recent Mac running OS X, and all of a sudden the fans kick up, everything's unresponsive, you're like, what's going on? And you click the little spotlight icon and it says that it's indexing. And you've got, you know, you've got multiple cores, you've got an SSD, and it's still just completely hosing your system. So imagine that Sherlock was basically trying to do the same thing to index for content searching, but on slow hard drives with megabytes instead of gigabytes of RAM. It was brutal. And the problem was that frequently, whenever you opened it, it would say, oh, hey, I haven't been opened in a while. Now would be a great time for me to start indexing and not let you do anything until I'm done. And you're like, no, I just want to find that file right now. Yeah. That was version one, OS 8.5. Version two came out with OS 9. And I think that was like the marquee feature of OS 9 because didn't the, the retail box art had a magnifying glass on it to signify Sherlock 2. Yeah, and I found reviews that just absolutely raved <laughs> over Sherlock 2 and its functionality. And we'll link to some of those in the show notes. But I think the big improvement, if you want to call it that, was that it split the internet capabilities of sh searching the internet into the same channels we've been talking about with every other ISP, with AOL, with eWorld. They had the same kind of groups of things. You want to look for things that you want to buy, there's a shopping channel. If you want to search recent news, there's a news channel, uh, sports, finance, entertainment, and so on. Right, and this is so different from what we're used to today. You know, we've moved past, past this, where now we say, okay, I want sports information. Well, 
if you're really at a loss, you can go to Google and type in sports <laughs> and it'll, like, it'll give you some sites. But usually you think, okay, I want sports information. I know that on my computer, I go to ESPN. Mm-hmm. Or if I want soccer scores, I go to live score. Or if I'm on my phone, I open up the score app. Like I have so many different ways of like direct access to that stuff. Whereas it was still at that point where everything had to be sort of like categorized by purpose. Yeah. Also in this version two, um, well, version one had taken over command F from the finder because that's what it replaced. Sherlock was searching for everything on the internet and locally. So if you did command F, it would open the Sherlock app so you could start searching. Uh, this stayed true with version two in OS nine command F would still open fine. It would open Sherlock and have the, uh, focus on ready to find files locally on your hard drive, but it also added command H for search the internet. You could do that straight from the finder command H open Sherlock and it's on the internet channels tab ready to go. Sherlock also made the transition to OS 10 and got a major update. Well, first of all, it got a visual overhaul pinstripes and aqua and brushed metal and a glowing green button. And this, this may be one of the ugliest apps that Apple has ever produced. (laughs) It is a total disaster work. (laughs) Um, and also, as I recall, dirt slow. Yeah. Um, still doing that sort of local indexing stuff. This is pre spotlight and it was in 10.0 and 10.1. It was borderline impossible to just find a file on your system. You had to navigate by hand. But in 10.2 Jaguar version three of Sherlock was released and it got split so that Sherlock's functionality was now only for those sort of directed internet features, shopping, looking up movies, movie showtimes and movie previews, um, that sort of thing, searching eBay. And the find file functionality got rolled back into the finder itself. But of course, this was not without some controversy because prior to that, another third-party OS X application had been released which they realized was a companion to this sort of search service because that app was Watson. Obviously, punning on the Sherlock name, you know, Sherlock is the thing who is the sleuth who goes to find things, and Watson is trusty sidekick. So version 3 of Sherlock looked... It it was pretty much a dead clone of Watson. Yeah, And it's where we get the term Sherlocking now, which is where... Some sort of third-party software is developed for the Mac. It does some wonderful thing. And then Apple says, hey, that would be really great if we rolled that into the OS. And they don't call or consult anybody. And just, boom, next thing you know, um, the next version of the OS comes out and there's Dashboard. (laughs) Yeah. There's Dashboard for Confabulator, uh, reading list for Pocket and Instapaper. Um, you know, people thought that Spotlight was going to Sherlock things like Quicksilver and LaunchBar, but more and more, the times that people say, oh, so-and-so got Sherlocked, Apple 
is taking a more simplistic approach. Yes. And for power users who really love all the deep functionality of those third-party apps, uh, those app makers don't go out of business. They still have a clientele. They're still offering something above and beyond the core OS features. Also in OS 9, besides the new version of Sherlock, were some interesting little helper apps that Apple thought was useful to include on the Mac to make your internet experience easier. (laughs) Yeah, there are two apps that uh, anyone who's probably come across a fresh install of OS 9 will remember. There was Browse the Internet and Mail, and they both had uh, the kind of pointer finger cursor rotated 90 degrees. Browse the Internet had the pointer finger pointing at the globe, and Mail had the pointer finger pointing at some envelopes. But all these applications did was subsequently launch the default application for internet and email that you had set in your preferences. That was all they did. And like you said, these aliases would show up on the desktop when, I think when you installed OS 9 in the first place, and I feel like they kept cropping up other times. Like maybe if you in any update and you would just have to put them in the trash because they were... They were an alias to an app that just launched another app. Yeah. It's like a double chain link to an app that you already know where it is. So we wanted to run down a few more apps that we used in OS 8 and OS 9 that were part of our core internet experience before we close it off and say that we're up to the modern internet era. So let's run down, Brian, what were some of the big apps that you used that made the internet possible on your Mac? Well, because I was uh, using a free ISP separate from AOL, I had to provide my own browser. And the browser of choice, get ready, was Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer 5, to be exact. I think I started using Internet Explorer on the Mac in IE3. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... I also, I've always been the kind of person who sort of flips back and forth between browsers. Um, Although I've been on Chrome for a long time now. Um, But I used Internet Explorer, Netscape 2, Netscape 4. Netscape 4 was great because it rendered things the best, but it was a giant piece of bloatware. (laughs) It was always back and forth between IE and Netscape in those days. Of course, now it's... Firefox, Safari, and Chrome. Oh, one thing that I just remembered about Internet Explorer 5 that kind of connects it back to Sherlock and that notion of being able to get at information more readily and with less data was that there was a feature in IE5 that where you could, if you bookmark sites, then you could also mark them for like a subscription. Yeah. Do you remember us- using this feature? And so you would say, check my subscribed sites. They were in this little like drawer that popped out from the left. It was like your bookmarks list. And what it would do is it would keep a cached version on your computer of the just like the HTML page for that site. And then what it would do is it would go out and crawl all those sites, but not load any of the other elements on the page. So it would just grab the HTML of the page. It would compare it against its cached version and tell you if anything had changed. So if you had like news sites that maybe only updated once a day, 
which was pretty common then, <laughs> um, you would say, hey, go check all my subscriptions. And it would say, put a little bold or little star next to it. It's like, hey, the Mac Addict site has a new story because we compared these two HTML pages and they're not the same. Right. So now you can actually go load the whole thing with all the images and see it. And that was like, that was the way that you got around the internet quickly on a dial-up connection then. I also remember just because you were working with so such a little bandwidth, constantly watching the amount of data that was going in and out. And for that, I used an app called IP Net Monitor. And all it was was just a little little window that gave you a graph of network traffic. And basically, you know, either your connection was saturated or it was not <laughs> if you had a 56K modem. Yeah. But you wanted to see whether it was to see whether you should start basically a new transfer of any sort. And also in that folder of screenshots, et cetera, um, that I used, that I used uh, Snaps Pro oh, to create, yeah. right? Snaps Pro from Ambrosia. One of the big features of Snaps Pro was that even on the classic Mac, it could do basically screencast recording. Um, you could easily crash your Mac <laughs> doing that. Um, you had to get the settings just right, uh, get the RAM set just right, have enough hard drive space, et cetera. Um, but I have this little QuickTime movie of just the IP net monitor window. It kept a running total of all of the data that it tracked. And so I had it open anytime that I was using the computer and was online. And I have a little video of it going over the one gigabyte <laughs> mark. That's awesome. Which was like a huge milestone. Yeah, for a 56K modem. The, the file is called one gig DL exclamation point dot move. <laughs> we'll post it in the show notes. It is completely boring. You just see a little number roll over. <laughs> that was such a huge amount of data at that time. And then, you know, last night I went and downloaded the new Top Gear, which is 1.4 gigabytes <laughs> in, I think it finished in about six minutes. That's crazy. But that was like, that was like a year and a half worth of data. Yeah. You know, we think that data caps for wireless data are pretty harsh, but we burn through the stuff now. We have it good. Uh, I'd never used a dedicated email app in the days of classic Mac OS because it was still tied to uh, an AOL address. So I would just go into AOL for it, but there were options for it. Microsoft had Outlook Express and there was a uh, Eudora, which I think is beloved by the people who used it. It definitely, there are people who mourn the loss of Eudora. I was never a Eudora user. I did switch over to Outlook Express. I think probably at whatever point I started monitoring more than one email account. Um, I know in the past we mentioned the kaleidoscope scheme list yeah. when uh, we were talking about kaleidoscope a few episodes ago. I remember checking that in Outlook Express. I had it set up so it would filter into a folder. Um, you know, that was the thing that you got beyond the AOL client. It was, I don't, I don't even remember when they added folders, but it was pretty much like you add new mail and red mail <laughs> and not a whole lot of organization and not a whole lot of search. You know, today people say, oh, just use Gmail and don't worry about like filing your stuff. Just like chuck it in there. Google's got the search 
mojo. They can find anything. But that was not the case then. It was just like your old email went into a pile and, you know, good luck finding it. Um, but Outlook Express, as the name implied, it was a nice lightweight app. It had lots of features. It had full-fledged mail rules. Uh, and I remember it being, you know, a really good productivity app. And then I continued into OS X using Entourage as my mail client, because that was the successor to Outlook Express. Uh, I used Entourage for a while before switching over to Apple Mail, and then finally getting fed up with Apple Mail. <laughs> and I'm using AirMail now, and I'm starting to get fed up with AirMail. <laughs> All of these things go in cycles. Yeah. Um, a couple other quick mentions from that era that we may talk about in later shows. Uh, one of them was Hotline, which was, again, sort of like a social app, uh, sort of like IRC mixed with file sharing, mixed with all kinds of things. You, you, would connect to, you would connect to a specific server, and there would be like a news board where people could post, and then you could see that later. There was real-time chat. There was direct messaging. There was a file sharing area, so there was lots of like illicit file trading of course. on many hotline servers. Um, I had one that I particularly went to a lot, and it was the only one where I was like known and welcome. A lot of the time, you would go into a hotline server and be like kicked instantly, like get get out of here. Who are you? <laughs> um, it was kind of like a heresy, but even more cutthroat sometimes. Um, the one that I went to was the Avera line hotline server. It was a bunch of people who played Avera online, which was another Ambrosia game. It was sort of like a little mech warrior type game. Um, I never really got to play it properly online because I was on dial up and the latency was terrible. If you had like, you know, and I was on AOL who was notorious for having, even for dial up, having like bad network problems because they were getting crushed in the late 90s. They had way too much traffic. Yeah. And so you would have ping times that were well up over a second. You can't play a real-time game on that. No. But what Avera did have was real-time chat. So this was even sort of, you know, beyond instant message, instant messaging, where you type something, and then you hit enter, and it appears on the other person's screen. This was the type of real-time chat where every keystroke was sent in real time. So you would see the message appear and people would make typos and backspace <laughs> and, and go through. Um, and it's, it was a novelty in some sense, but it was also kind of useful. Like today I was having an iMessage conversation on my phone and you get the little, the other person is typing indicator. And man, wouldn't it be really useful if, especially if you could turn it on, like just for VIPs or something, where you could say, hey, show me the characters as they type them. Because it would just make it seem that much more like a real-time conversation. I guess they, you know, they're pushing the, the voice messages instead, but that still feels awkward. Yeah. And also makes me think of the late 90s with those like push-to-talk Nextel cell phones. I was just going to say, <laughs> yep. Yeah, like glorified walkie-talkies on a cellular network. Yeah. Uh, I would like to bring up one more application because no mention of the internet in the late 1990s is complete without Napster. 
And there was first an unofficial client for Macintoshes called Maxter, and then uh, the Napster company, with what money I don't know, um, bought that bought the client and released it as the uh, the official native client. Yeah, that's a good question because it was pre venture capital days. Yeah, they didn't get a big pile of money land on them, and they weren't doing any advertising i don't i don't think and we all know that they famously were on the hook for so much money after the lawsuits started coming in so i really don't know how that worked but uh in like a weird personal connection to that i ended up in a in a meeting with one of the people who made that unofficial client for napster um and i was using another app that his small development team had made and as i command tabbed between things that I was showing him, he, he just casually like, oh yeah, I made that. <laughs> which And then he's like, which means I, I made the, the Napster app back in the day. Small world. The Mac community is small sometimes. It really is. I've got a lot of, uh, of MP3s that are from that era that came from Napster. And I sort of grouped them all they they got all imported off of a CD that I burned at some data CD that I burned at some point and put into my iTunes library today. And so I, instead of properly tagging them, I just put them under their own massive album. Oh, uh-huh. And they're all really crap quality. <laughs> but like, like even if they're 128 K MP3s, they're badly encoded <laughs> MP3s. Um, and several of them are 96k MP3s. Mm-hmm. So a couple years ago, when I signed up for iTunes Match, I went through, and for a lot of my music library, I deleted my copies of the songs and re-downloaded them from iTunes Match to quote upgrade the quality to 256k. Except the things that I had that I downloaded from Napster for some reason just because you know also because it's like the music that i listened to in middle school and early high school <laughs> yeah part of the nostalgia of that is listening to it through like really badly compressed artifacty mp3s and if i hear the song like the way that it sounded on cd or like beautifully mastered i'm like oh i don't want to listen to that <laughs> but if i have that like 96k mp3 it's like, yeah, I remember downloading this song from Napster totally. back in the day. It's, it, it's so stupid. It's like the op- reverse audiophile nostalgia. Yeah. Um, but I will not update those. And like, I use iTunes Match on my work computer and haven't transferred over the files. I just pull it from iTunes Match. And when those songs come up, they get skipped because they sound wrong. <laughs> they sound too good. All right. Well, I think that finishes our tour of the internet, uh, the early days of the internet as they coincided with the mid nineties, uh, Macintosh. Thank goodness. I can go check Twitter now. (laughs) (laughs) It is important though, to see where all that stuff comes from. And just remember that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Seriously. We, we go through cycles and patterns. Yeah. And Everyone gets a little bit bent out of shape. You know, Twitter's dying. Twitter's changing. Um, it's not the plain 140 characters that we were used to. But we don't know what the next thing is. And I'm sure we'll 
love it just as much. Yeah. So yeah, you can go to our website if you want to check out the show notes for this episode with lots of links and screenshots of this old software, people talking, reminiscing about eWorld and and how it was built and those sorts of things. That is on our website at simplebeep.com. And if you're listening to this episode in the far future, you can find it and all of our episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And like we said at the top of the show, if you're interested in appearing on a future episode of Simple Beep and talking about your first Mac experience or, or anything that you'd like to share, or if you'd just like to give us some feedback on this episode, talk to us about your first internet experience. Your embarrassing AOL screen names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can go to our website, simplebeep.com, to submit something through our contact form or contact us through Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. And I am on Twitter at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. We'll see you next time. Bye.